And please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning. It's um, one of my favorite passages. Uh, John is one of my favorite books, and this is one of my favorite passages in the Gospel of John, uh, so at least you'll know I'm excited about it. Um, whether or not it's a, it's a good, helpful sermon to you might be a, another question, but <clears throat> um, I'm excited about this one. Uh, it's about a wedding. It's about Jesus at a wedding. Going, going to a wedding is a good time, isn't it? I mean, uh, some of you actually headed to a wedding right after church. <laughs> it's usually something that we anticipate. We, we look forward to it. This is a, it's a good time. I realize that there might be several reasons why going to a wedding would be difficult for some people, um, mainly having to do with their own experience of marriage or uh, lack thereof, um, that it might be difficult to go to a wedding if, uh, if that's something that you've longed for and never happen- it's never happened for you or uh, something that you've experienced and it went badly because you had a uh, marriage that ended. I realize there are lots of reasons why uh, it, it would, it's difficult to be at weddings, but, um, but in general, <clears throat> there are occasions of joy, aren't they? I mean, in fact, unsurpassed occasions of joy in most cultures. And I think, isn't it, isn't it intriguing <clears throat> that humanity virtually universally shares an innate sense of the prominence of the wedding as a social occasion for celebration? This is the best thing in the village. This is the best thing in the community. This is the best thing going on in a lot of our lives, this wedding. It's, it's prominent as a social occasion for our celebration. And I think it's really interesting that that's almost a universal experience. It's almost a universal view <clears throat> of weddings. Wedding feasts in ancient Israel often lasted several days and were high points in the life of the entire community, not just for the couple, but for everyone around, family, friends, neighbors, everybody. Preparations were made for extended community festivities um, so it wasn't just that uh, the couple spent a lot of money on, you know, a nice honeymoon where they escaped and went somewhere. It's that the people spent a lot of money so that the whole community could have a festival around this wedding. Everyone was drawn up into the delight of the couple's union. The celebration of union. The celebration of union. It's the zenith of our lives together. And for good reason, because it's the point of the whole world. The celebration of union. Not just union, the celebration of union is the point of the whole world. The Bible describes our relationship with God as a marriage, a close, intimate union. It describes it this way so many times throughout all the scriptures. A relationship with God is like a marriage, and one day we will enter into a celebration of that union, the Bible calls it a wedding feast that will catch the whole world up in our never-ending delight. The whole world will be caught up in the celebration of our union with God. And that's a vision that Jesus not only reveals to us in passages like this one that we're going to read in just a minute, but um, it's a vision that he alone makes possible. He's the only one that can make this, this wedding feast a reality for us, and he does it. He guarantees it to us through his love. So that's what we're going to talk about 
this morning. Let me pray, and we'll read the scripture. <clears throat> Father, we are at your mercy, and you are merciful. So would you have mercy on us and help us as we consider your word this morning? This is a confusing word. Um, it, uh, it overthrows our expectations about who you are and what you would be like and how to have a relationship with you, so much so that it can be difficult for us even to understand what it is we're reading and hearing. We pray that you would help us and guide us and uh, change us from the inside out by your Holy Spirit so that we can receive your word and uh, be changed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. <clears throat> so, um, there are a lot of things that can ruin a party. Nothing ruins a good party like running out of the provisions. <laughs> running out of provisions. This actually had, uh, we had this problem at the men's retreat, <laughs> mostly through my own fault. We had brought plenty. We had brought plenty of pork shoulder to smoke. And Saturday, we put it in the smoker. We put half of it in because I figured... Um, you know, the amount that we've got here looks to me like it's going to be sufficient for us. We don't, we don't probably need to make both these pork shoulders. We can just get away with one. And so eight hours later, <clears throat> we're digging into that pork, and it ran out like that <laughs> because he had a bunch of hungry guys there, right? Uh, we smoked it and did half as, what, half as much as what we needed. That was bad planning on my part, bad planning, kind of embarrassing. I still feel bad about that and not conducive to deep satisfaction when guys are really hungry, right? Not conducive to deep satisfaction running out of the, the main course. And here, <clears throat> in our passage, we see that apparently Jesus cares about stuff like that. He cares about stuff like that. When the wine runs out, this party is about to come up short. And he thinks it was supposed to be more fun than that. Um, does it surprise you that the greatest man who ever lived 
would care about something like that. Here's a great party, and a lot of us would say, hey, the life of it, it was great while it lasted, now maybe it's time to go home, but no, this party's got to keep going. Does it surprise you that Jesus cares about the fact that wine ran out? It, it isn't life or death, right? Some of his miracles, some of the signs that he performs, uh, especially in John's gospel, they are matters of life and death. I mean, it isn't someone's sick child that needs healing. It's a rural wedding in really nowheresville that he keeps from falling flat. It's, it's surprising cynical people with the provision of superabundant joy. Surprising cynical people like the master of the feast. Surprising them with superabundant joy. And this is the first miraculous sign Jesus performs. This is how he chooses to begin the revelation of his glory. To let people know who he really is. To let people know who God really is. And that, that little <clears throat> bit at the end where it says this is the first of his signs that Jesus did and he revealed his glory. That's meant to call our attention to the fact that this is a big deal. You should see something very important about the fact that John opens up his gospel this way, that this is the, the first significant thing Jesus did in his ministry in a, in a public setting where he used miraculous power, right? The first thing that he does and he wants to communicate something through it is this. And that means if you're left scratching your head about, like, well, why? <laughs> it's a party that was going to run out of wine. What's the big deal about that? You need to pursue that, not let the question drop, when you see stuff like that, you need to find out why is this a big deal? Why is this apparently such a big deal? Jesus is, um, he is entirely unbound by people's expectations. We learn that here in this passage. He is entirely unbound by the expectations of others. He won't be coerced to action even by his own mother. If there's anybody in the world that he's supposed to listen to, it's his mother. He is not going to let himself be coerced to action, even by her. She makes him aware of the situation. She, it's very simple what she says. They have no wine. Like, this is going to get awkward. It's about, you know, the, the party's going to fall flat. And, and it sort of comes across as a hint that he should do something about it. Doesn't it? It's like... You know, your mom comes to your house and you're having a party or something like that. And, um, and she says, you know, the dishes are really piling up. Or, or worse yet, your mom and you are at somebody else's house. And she says, you know, the dishes are really piling up. That's not my job. I don't, <laughs> you know. It, she's pointing this out and it comes across as a hint that he should do something about it. She's kind of bossing him around, actually. That's... I think that's the takeaway here from her short words. She's she kind of bossing him around. And often, here's a way for us to think about this with our own relationship to God. Often our prayers imply that we think we know what's best when it comes to the circumstances that we're seeing. Right? Our circumstances, we know how these things should be fixed, how these things should be rectified, and we presume to know what God's action should be. A lot of times, our prayers amount to this. I know what's best in this little world, 
and God, you should do what I think you should do. Right? Uh, often our prayers imply that. She knew there was something special about Jesus. She'd heard the angel, even though this apparently is actually the first time that he's exercising miraculous powers in order to make a point. Um, she knew there was something special about him. And she thought that maybe she could could nudge him or bump him or guide him toward using his power, that maybe actually she ultimately could wield his own power by very subtly suggesting that, of course, it would be good to help here. Right? Um, and Jesus' response to that, it actually is a bit cold. It seems that way, at least. It seems cold and distant at first. He actually does this kind of thing several times in the Gospels to show that his actions are his own. Somebody comes to him with a request, and he kind of shuts him down at first. Or he surprises us by delaying his help until it seems like it's too late. Right? He does this kind of thing several times in the Gospels to show that his actions are his own. He's not bound by the expectations of other people. His actions are freely chosen. He is the Lord. He is not beholden to us. He is not a servant of our will. He actually says to his mother, uh, I mean, even good translations kind of have a hard time um, communicating how curt he is with his mother, how, how short he is. He, he basically says to her, what is it to you and me, woman? What, what are you trying to do here with me? What is it to you and me, woman? It might seem a bit disrespectful, but it, it's actually a very gentle reminder. It's actually very gentle when you think about what's happening. A, a reminder that Jesus is the one with a rightful claim to our obedience and not the other way around. Right? He's the one with a rightful claim to our obedience, and perhaps she'd forgotten her place. Right? He isn't being grumpy. He isn't being whiny. Right? She wants him to do something, and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, that's not the way that he's being. He's actually saying it for her good and for our good. That's why it's communicated here in the Scriptures. It's like we need to see ourselves in Mary's position. We need to know that what he does when he does it, he does it freely because he is the Lord. He does what he wants to do, and that's good for us. It's good for us that we actually don't impose our will on him. Um, we'll come back to his other words here in a minute, his other words to his mother, but it, it does seem actually that his, his mother took his mild rebuke <clears throat> to heart because uh, she instructed the servants, okay, you do whatever he says. Right? He's not... Uh, He's not bending to our will here. We're going to place ourselves at his disposal. Right? Maybe it seems a bit presumptuous for her to know that Jesus will still act, even though his words uh, could be taken as dismissive of her. But, um, but I think this now is more an expression of her faith or her submission to Jesus than, than it was before. And Martin Luther, I think, um, would agree. He makes this point. He says, that we honor God as being good and gracious, even if he apparently acts and speaks otherwise, 
and all our understanding and feeling be otherwise. Mary is certain that he will be gracious, although she does not feel it. This, this brief interaction that Jesus has had with Mary where he's mildly rebuked her for being a bit presumptuous, um, she's still certain that he will be gracious, even though that interaction may not have indicated that, right? So she is hopeful, and she instructs others to hope, too, to wait upon him to respond to Jesus, to respond to him, even if he is unpredictable, even if we can't control him, even if he doesn't always do what we think he should do, right? He's untamable. He's not bound to live up to our expectations. We should wait upon him and respond to him, right? She probably isn't aware that her implicit prayer request, which is what this it kind of is when she hints at the fact that something could be done about the wine, it's the equivalent of a prayer request, right? Um, she's not aware of it, that, uh, that it would be an opportunity for him to reveal his particular glory. And he's not going to pass the chance for that, right? He's, he's going to reveal his glory. She didn't pray, show us your glory here. Maybe she should have. Maybe that should have been her prayer, but, uh, but that actually is the prayer request that he answered, <laughs> He knew better the need of of her heart and our hearts, the hearts of all of his disciples, the hearts of people everywhere, that he would reveal his glory through a circumstance like this. He would reveal his glory in an apparent answer to the need of the moment, which is what uh, a lot of our prayers amount to. There's a need of the moment. We need your help. Circumstances are what they are. Could you please intervene? Right? There's a need of the moment, and he would answer that, apparently, but, but through that, it would be a sign. It would be a revelation of something much deeper. It would be the, he would reveal the glory of God himself. He would reveal a cosmically stunning glory that goes well beyond. It's much more profound than the need of the moment just to keep the party going. Right? <clears throat> so he's, he sees an opportunity here to reveal his glory. And this is the glory that he revealed about himself. This is the glory of God that we see revealed in this first sign recorded in John's gospel. He is 100% invested. He is 100% committed to the celebration of our union with God, to our celebration of our union with God, and his love would be what makes that possible. He's committed to it, and he's going to make it possible. And that's the glory that he reveals. He sees a connection between the need of the moment, which is the party that's going to fall flat. People are going to stop celebrating. People are going to go home surly. Right? This thing should have lasted longer. There should have been more fun associated with this great celebration of union. He sees the need of the moment, and he sees a connection there with our eternal need with regard to our relationship to God. And that's the only way to make sense of the way that he's talking about things and the way in which he provides the wine for the party, right? When he is confronted with the idea of providing wine for this party, if, he's, if the party's going to keep going, he's going to have to do something about it. When he's confronted with that idea, he sees a connection with providing wine for his own wedding feast, providing the wine 
for our wedding feast with him. Uh, Tim Keller points this out in a great sermon on this passage. Uh, You should go listen to it if you didn't already. I know I sent it out in an email this week, uh, a link to it. Um, It's a great sermon, but he points this out. Whenever we go to weddings, we think about our own weddings, right? Whether that's something that we've done in the past, we look back to our own wedding with fondness or, unfortunately, sometimes regret, right? Or something that hasn't happened yet, to us, and we wish it would happen, there's a wedding that we have a longing for. We want to be where the bride and groom are, but it hasn't happened yet. When we go to weddings, we think about our own weddings. And raise your hand if that doesn't describe you. That describes you. That describes me. When we go to weddings, we think about our own weddings. Jesus was thinking about his wedding when he was here at this wedding. He was thinking about his wedding to his own bride, which is the church. We are his bride. Sorry if that's a little weird for guys to think about, but collectively as the church, together we are meant for this intimate, personal, close relationship with God that's described as a marriage. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride, and he's thinking about that at this wedding. He's thinking about what it would take to make that wedding feast, his wedding feast, a joyful occasion to provide wine for his wedding feast. Otherwise, you have a complete non sequitur, like a does not follow what he says uh, when he responds to his mother, basically when she says, they've run out of wine, help with the wine? Do you see a cross around here anywhere? I mean, that leaves you scratching your head. That doesn't make any sense, unless he's thinking about what it would take to provide the wine, to provide the superabundant joy for his own wedding feast with the church. Provide the wine, help with the wine. Do you see a cross? That's what he's saying when he says, my hour's not yet come. It's, I'm not hanging on the cross yet. That's in the Gospel of John when Jesus is talking about his hour. He says, the hour's not yet come. The hour will come. The hour has come. He's talking about his suffering, his death, his sacrifice on the cross for our reconciliation to God. That thing that was necessary. If we're going to be restored to our union with God and that be a delightful thing, he'd have to go to the cross. Otherwise, there's no wedding feast in the future for him or us. And this occasion in Cana provides him the opportunity to demonstrate that he is actually going to provide for his own wedding feast, that he actually is the true master of the feast. He will provide everlasting joy, and he will do it through his own self-sacrifice. That's what it would take, and that's what he would do. He's committed to that. In Cana, at this wedding, he provided an incredible amount of wine for this party, way more than they could drink, way more. I mean, some of us have, what, 40 gallons of wine sitting in a basement, and maybe another 30 gallons of cider, and another 40 gallons of mead, right? This seems overwhelming. How are we going to bottle all this stuff? What are we going to do? How are we going to drink this? We're going to give it away to all kinds of people, right? There's a lot, and it, it still doesn't add up to how much he provided at this, at this one occasion, 150 gallons of the good stuff, right? That's 750 bottles, 
<clears throat> That's 62 cases. This is the Lord of joy. This is the Lord of joy. This is way beyond what people need to have a good time, right? <clears throat> He's the Lord of joy, and you will be pleasantly surprised to, to discover that eternity with him will not be boring. It won't be boring. He makes the celebration of union his priority. And this, in and of itself, is a bursting of our categories as much as Jesus talks about new wine bursts the old wineskins. If you had old categories for what God would be like, this comes in and shatters them. It destroys them. That he's the Lord of the feast like this, that he's the Lord of all joy, that he's providing, he is committed to the celebration of our union with him. <clears throat> it can be hard to even understand this passage because it just bursts our categories for God. This is what God is like? This is not what we imagined God would be like. <clears throat> to think that God wants us to delight in our relationship with him as spouses delight in one another. C.H. Dodd is a commentator. He says, Christ has come to inaugurate a new order in religion. It's a totally new order. This is something new and surprising to us. This is not what any of us expected, a Savior like this. God, God doesn't want us to think about ourselves as his slaves. He doesn't want to make our life miserable as we just gut out some form of obedience and earn some kind of reward from him. He doesn't just want us to think about that, the relationship that way. He actually wants us to think about our relationship with all the closeness and intimacy and security of a beloved bride provided for by her bridegroom. <clears throat> and in order for all this to happen, in order for Jesus to provide the festival joy for us, he would provide the wine and... Uh, and it's his own blood. It's his own blood. Shed for our purification. So it's significant here <clears throat> that it says that the, the water was in jars used for ritual purification. So washings and cleansings and baptisms were actually a regular feature of Jewish religion, but the Christian knows that the fulfillment of all these things, the true cleansing that we need, comes through his blood which was shed for our forgiveness, which we remember with wine at the table because that's what he said to do. This wine is my blood. And we drink it by faith to receive the spiritual benefits of his blood. And the spiritual benefit is joy in our relationship with God being restored. And it was his joy too, right? The Bible says it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross, that he gave himself, that he did whatever it took to, to guarantee that our wedding feast would be a, a time for celebration. Right? He looked forward to his wedding day, to the great wedding feast. He looked forward to it, just like a lot of us have looked forward to it or do look forward to our, our earthly wedding. We long for that day to come. We wonder when it's going to come. And we invest a lot in it in it coming and actually happening, right? He looked forward to his wedding day, <clears throat> the celebration of our union with him in the new heavens and the new earth, and it was that vision 
that sustained him as he did what he had to do in order to make it all possible. He, he is fully committed to this thing because of the joy that it would be for him and for us. And this is far more significant, <clears throat> I think, than, than you know, a lot of our experience with weddings. Uh, a bride-to-be putting her fiancé through hell with all the preparations, right? Uh, Jesus actually went through hell. <laughs> he actually went through hell for our sake, and there's a real sense in which we put him through it. He laid down his life for his bride so that one day she could lift the cup of joy with him. And that's his glory. That's the glory that was manifested, that's revealed here in this miracle. Christ brings us festival joy, even people like us. He brings it to us, and he pays the dear price for it all himself. And it's a surprising glory, just as the, <clears throat> the cynical master of the feast was surprised, right? This is difficult for people with a pessimistic view of life, a pessimistic view of religion, pessimistic view of relationships or God, this is a great surprise to us. People don't do this. People don't save the best wine for last. This, this is not computing for me. These don't fit my categories and stereotypes about God. The world doesn't work this way. This doesn't make any sense. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> doesn't make any sense. That's wonderful. And it says his disciples believed in him. <clears throat> this is the Christ that the disciples believed in. <clears throat> so what does it mean for us? I mean, kind of wrap up with some applications. What does it mean for you to believe in this Savior, to, to believe in this Jesus who reveals this glory about God? What does that mean? Uh, it means you've got to let him fix your party, right? You're on one trajectory where you're trying to throw a party for yourself uh, in this life and the next and you're out of wine. Maybe you didn't know it, but you're out. You don't have the resources that you need. You're, you're not able to fix your party. The poor couple here, maybe they're just silly. Maybe they're bad planners. Um, I don't know, but they ran out of wine, and that's a pretty significant reflection of the way that it is in our relationship with God. We, we don't have what it takes to bring the celebration of our union with God. We don't have it. We want a party. We can't get it for ourselves. <clears throat> But this poor couple, um, they actually receive credit for what Jesus has done to fix their party. Right? The master of the feast goes to the bridegroom, this clueless guy with bad planning, and says, you did this. This is amazing what you've done. <clears throat> and again, Tim Keller uh, has a great point that he makes. It's that this guy receives the credit for what Jesus has done. Right? So believing in him means that we receive the credit for what Jesus has done to fix our party with God. We receive the credit, right? He gives you the right to everything that he deserves, everything that he's done. He shares it with you. He shares the right for you to claim it as if you had done it. All of his righteousness, all of his love, all of his obedience in God's sight is imputed to you when you trust in him, when you, you're united to him in a relationship with him. He gives you that right, just like he gave this poor bridegroom <clears throat> the right to take the credit for what Jesus had done to fix the party. Right? <clears throat> um, he takes our debt 
and not only does he take it and, and remove it, he, uh, he fills our bank account, right, uh, with, with his own righteousness. This, um, this happens normally in uh, marriage circumstance, right? When somebody gets married, they take their bank accounts and they merge them, and your debt becomes my debt, and if I'm rich, it becomes your wealth, right? This is one of the things I remember very clearly when I asked Jerry's dad <clears throat> if I could marry her, and uh, I sheepishly asked, and the first thing he said was, you get her bills. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's great, <laughs> right? <clears throat> I get her debt, and if I have any money, I share it with her. And in our union with Jesus Christ, all of our debt in God's sight, all of the sin and the guilt and the death that we deserve, he took it upon himself. And all of the glory that he has in and of himself because of who he is and what he's done, he shares it with us. He freely gives it to us. <clears throat> so you've got to let him fix your party and you've got to actually take credit for it <laughs> through faith in him because he's the one who's fixed it. Uh, <clears throat> secondly, you've got to open your life to him as you would open your life to a spouse to put to put our religion, to put our spirituality, to put our faith in terms of a spiritual union with, with God that is equivalent to a marriage. What's a marriage supposed to be like? It's supposed to be intimate. You're supposed to be vulnerable with one another. <clears throat> You're supposed to know that your spouse will not reject you. You're supposed to be secure in that knowledge. That's a very difficult security to come by in our earthly relationships, but with Jesus it is true. You are totally safe with him. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will love you to the end and through it. And so you can open up your life to him. You can be who you really are and let him know you and come to know him and enjoy that close personal relationship that you're made for and that you're redeemed for. <clears throat> and this can just reshape our thoughts about marriage, right? We're just talking about regular earthly marriage. It reshapes our thoughts, especially the thoughts of those. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're married or you're not married, not married yet, or you've been married and you're divorced or whatever situation you find yourself in with regard to an earthly marriage, it changes the way that you can think about your marriage <clears throat> to think about the fact that you are in a union with Christ and one day you will celebrate it forever. Right? That means in our earthly relationships, we're not looking for that ultimate joy. You actually can't have the ultimate joy, not in your earthly relationships, right? Not, in, not even in the best earthly marriage, especially those who are pining for relationships that, that they don't have, that either they've never had and they're looking forward to having or they've tasted it or they've, they've had it and they've lost it, right? <clears throat> it's, it's normal for us to be lonely and it's not good for us to be lonely and God knows that it's not good for us to be lonely. But we have this pining and this longing for this deep, intimate connection that, um, that ultimately you can't have in your earthly relationships. You can only have in your relationship with God. You can only have the ultimate joy, the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate security in a relationship with Him. And you know now, if you, if you know what it means to pine for marriage, to long for that kind of closeness, because of this text, you know that he has pined for you. He has longed for you. 
He's looked forward to his own wedding feast and said, I can't wait for that to happen. <clears throat> and it's been for the joy of it that he's, in, he's made every preparation necessary for you to enter into the, the great romance with him. He's pined for you. He's made preparations for you. This is infinitely more satisfying than any earthly marriage can be. And they're supposed to be good, and we can enjoy them. But this is ultimate. This is ultimate, and it sustains you, and it changes you for the better. Whether you're single, looking forward to marriage, or, uh, or you're uh, married, and you're in a marriage, whether it's good or bad, knowing him and your union with him is the kind of thing that sustains you with regard to your relationship to a spouse. Right? <clears throat> and, um, and finally, I think looking at uh, our life with God this way and the fact that he's revealed his glory to us in this way, it gives you permission to live your whole life in anticipation of your great wedding day. I mean, I know a lot of us have, have experienced some of that anticipation. If you're married, <clears throat> there, there surely was a time when you were, for a couple months or several weeks at least, you were just amped up with anticipation, excitement, enthusiasm, longing, even some frustration is appropriate. Some frustration is appropriate. I can't wait. When's that day going to come? When's my wedding day going to come? It is going to come. It is going to come. And that anticipation can be largely characterized by the, the joyful expectation of the fact that that day is going to come because you know <clears throat> because you know Jesus Christ. You know who he is. You know what he's done. You know that's been in his mind. That's been his goal all along. The celebration of union. He's done everything necessary. He's guaranteed it to you through his blood. That day is going to come. And blessed are all those who are invited to that marriage, that marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, this is too good for us. It's uh, well beyond us to expect something so good from you, that you are this good, that you take all of our fears, all of our wrong expectations about who you are and how to relate to you, you turn them all upside down. And you've made good promises, good vows to us as to a spouse, and vows that have been sealed through your own death, through the shedding of your own blood. We know that your word is true. We know that this is the trajectory of the whole world and of our lives as your people, that we will see you face to face. We will sit with you and we will dance with you. We will be with you and rejoice together with you, being, being drawn up into your own joy. One day at the, um, at the coming of the Lord, at the new heavens and the new earth, the inauguration of, of eternity, our life with you will be characterized by a wedding feast because you have made all the preparations necessary for it in the, the sacrifice of your son, O oh God. So we're glad that you've done this. We're glad that you've called even people like us, that you've invited us and welcomed us into this, this great life, this spiritual marriage with you. <clears throat> and we pray that you would make it meaningful to us, that you would reshape the way that we think about you and our lives together and this whole world as we see um, 
everything leading to that great day, the celebration of our union with you as a gift of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.